Wait a minute. I thought that was Justin I was talking about. It was Merle. If you'll turn to Matthew 15. Merle, I know your head's not bigger than mine. And we're going to be looking at this passage, verses 1 through, well, it's more than a passage. Verses 1 through 28. We'll read that together. I, I will tell you, you know, before I start, I, I had I got called to fill in at Edgemont midweek. Uh, if I've <clears throat> preached out of Matthew 15 here before, uh, what, what? Okay, <laughs> but if if I have preached here before um, or spoken out of this, I I forgot. I am going to start writing. Cindy and I, I'm going to get a notebook. I have one, and I'm going to write down where I've been and what passages I've been in so I don't duplicate myself uh, somewhere before. But I don't know. Forgive me if I've been here before, you know, the, the times that I've, I've uh, had an opportunity to speak. But anyway, nonetheless, and I said the same thing to him at Edgemont because I've, I've, I've filled in there quite a bit in the past years. And and I, I cannot remember, but, but I can say this, that... Um, uh, this is I'm, I'm reading through Matthew right now personally, and I came up on this week and I'm studying. And I do come to this passage a lot in my life, and and I preach at churches that are in transition pretty often, not not like us, but that are in transition pastorally. And so there's some things here that that um, particularly are good for them, but uh, all of God's word is good for all of us. So anyway, if you'll look with me here, starting in verse one. <clears throat> Then Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem to Jesus and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break God's commandment? Because of your tradition. For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, Whoever tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way you have revoked God's word because of your tradition. Hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Summoning the crowd, he told them, Listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard this statement? And he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter replied to him, Explain this parable to us. Are you still lacking in understanding, he asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a man. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies, these are the things that defile a man, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And when Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. And just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and 
kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly tormented by a demon. And yet he did not say a word to her. So his disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she cries out after us. And he replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was cured. Let's pray. Lord, help us today and help us to see what you see. Um, Help us to understand your word and apply it to our lives, Lord. And guide us as we as we worship you together, as we seek your wisdom, and when we scatter from this place, Lord, help us to, to apply the wisdom that you've given us and, and that we would see people and see life and see eternity as you see it, as you want us to see it, and that we would be instruments in your hands and ambassadors for your kingdom. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, people, we, people like traditions. We like traditions. Churches like traditions. Families like traditions. Individuals like traditions. Nations like traditions. Traditions are, traditions are comfortable. They, they're things that we're familiar with, so we, um, we're just, we're comfortable with, with those kinds of things. The traditions aren't necessarily bad. They can be good. I'm sure that as I stand here, maybe um, everybody has thought of something that is a tradition in your family, in your home, um, maybe somewhere else. We, we cook, uh, we don't, but Cindy cooks breakfast casseroles on Christmas morning in our house and cinnamon rolls and orange danishes. And I mean, there's a whole lot of things you can choose to eat any day of the week, any day of the year, including Christmas morning, but we do that over and over again and read the Christmas story and and, um, and we, we like it. Um, I think, I'm pretty sure as I look in Scripture that God is okay with that. I don't have anything here that forbids us from doing that over and over and over and over again. But we don't have anything in there that tells us that we have to either. We just choose to and, and we enjoy that. And, and I, I uh, like to share this. My, my, my boyhood best friend, Jim Booth, he's a pastor up in Richmond. When we were sitting in our dorm room... Uh, at Wingate, our first year of school, uh, it was somewhere during 1985, 86. It was it was spring of 86. I know exactly what it was, because Jim is every bit of two years, two months older than I am. His birthday's in April, and mine's in June. Is that two months? April, May, June. Yeah. Okay, somewhere, give or take a few days, he's a couple of months older than I am, <clears throat> and he and I did then and do now have a quirky sense of humor just stupid and um but we enjoy it and we still do this day and I can remember we were sitting in the dorm room and we were studying and things were a little boring and I decided it was his birthday it was April 17th 1986 and he was 19 years old that day and I looked at him and I said Jim I'm I, I didn't I didn't give him any preparation for this I just started off said Jim I'm really struggling I, I'm having a problem I'm I'm hurting. 
He said, what is that, Mike? At first he was real serious. I said, well, I'm only 18, and I, I feel foolish, and I just don't know what it's like, you know, to be like you are and to be wise and older. You know, you're 19 years old. Can you help me? And Jim didn't even flinch. He went right with it. He just, just two of us sitting in our dorm room. He said, well, well, Mike, I remember when I was 18. It was cute. He said, and I thought I knew some things about life, but now that I'm 19, I know everything there is to know. And when you get my age, you'll know. He just, we just played this little role-playing thing just for fun. We're laughing at ourselves, just goofy sense of humor. And we do that just about every year. So, uh, and over certain things, and I, we'll get on the cell phone with each other. And um, this year, I, I, you know, I called him. I said, well, Jim, man, I, I've been in my 40s for nine years now, and you're, you're 50 now. And I just don't know what it's like, you know, to be 50. And he, he played the game. We just did that all over again. And we've done it with kids. And the, the last thing was I had to call him a while back and say, well, Jim, what's it like to be a, to be a grandfather? I, I don't, I mean, I just feel like I lack so much wisdom because I don't have any grandkids. It's just God's time. But we played that. Tradition. It's fine. It's fun. It, it, it can be good. But it can be dangerous at the same time. When we, when we have some things that uh, we put on a gospel level, things that God doesn't require of us, you know, maybe, maybe He doesn't mind, but He doesn't require of us, and then we, we cause grief in people's lives and our lives and our congregations and things. And I don't think this is particularly a problem for this congregation. That's why... Disclaimer up front why I'm in this passage uh, tonight. But still, we, we could face little dangers amongst ourselves and can sometimes for holding some things higher than we should. Um, and when you think about the, the, the comforts of traditions, um, Jesus uh, did everything but make these disciples comfortable in their life and ministry. He was comforting to their souls, obviously, but not comfortable to their lives and, and, uh, and, and their mission and some of the things that he required of them. In this uh, passage, these Pharisees, without, uh, I'm not an expert on all the history of it. I do, I do think I understand this much of it from what I know. Um, the Pharisees had, had said that this ceremonial washing of the hands which this was not about hygiene. This was not about having clean hands before you eat like you and I do. I would challenge everybody in here to wash your hands before you eat. That's a good idea. But this was a religious rite. This was a religious um, process that they thought made them holier. And they, they claimed, and I don't, this is where I don't know a whole lot about it. I haven't read a lot about this. But they claimed that although this was not written law, this was passed down from Moses as an oral tradition. As, as far as I can understand, and Wearsby believes that, that they, they um, said that this was an oral tradition that came down from Moses orally, although it's not something directly that the law says you have to wash your hands before you eat. Now, they were picking on the disciples and Jesus and casting this uh, in their direction. Why, why, do you, uh, why don't your disciples wash their hands do the ceremonial washing of hands before they eat. And, and Jesus said, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? Bold words here. Why do you break a commandment 
a direct requirement of God, a law, something that God insists upon for something that you merely want, for something that you implemented. And he goes on to say, honor your father and your mother and the one who speaks evil. And he talks about this process of honoring parents. Of course, we, we honor our parents or dishonor our parents in a lot of ways. Not just by what we uh, say or what we do, but, but who we are. All of us have honored our parents in some ways. All of us have dishonored our parents in some ways. And we need the grace of God uh, for repentance for that and forgiveness. And certainly we need his grace to honor him. But uh, he, he brings this issue up. And apparently what had happened here was, and just to put it in a nutshell, because it's not what I want to camp out on this evening, is that they had found a way, you know, they, this responsibility that they would have to help take care of their parents and, and, and to care for them, they'd, they'd found a way to, to kind of finagle out of that and, and, and loop the money back around. When he talks about them taking this money, things that they would use to care for their parents, and they commit it to the temple, where did they work? This was kind of a convenient cycle for them, wasn't it? To where uh, they they could they could do some things for for me, and uh, and not honor God in this way and honor their parents in this way. This was very self-centered, um, not just of gratification, but but a way to line themselves and to undergird themselves and their own comforts. And so Jesus speaks very frankly to them and boldly to them, and he goes on to say, <clears throat> and this is a key to everything. In scripture, all of scripture points to the glory of Christ. And all of scripture and everything that, that it has to say to man tells us that, that everything starts in the heart. That the heart, the, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart in our lives. And Jesus says in verse 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far, far from me. Um, Proverbs says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it, from the heart flow the wellsprings or the issues of life. That's where, that's where everything comes from. And, and then he says, they worship me in vain, teaching, kind of want to say it this way with a little enunciation, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Or let me say it this way, teaching as God's truth the mere commands of men. And he says that's, that's what we're, they're doing. And so we, we have to be careful in our lives, personally, in our families, in our church, in our congregations, to, to make sure that we understand the difference between the two. Doctrines here would, would mean the dogma, the absolutes, the uncompromising things that God has said must be. These things cannot be wavered upon. These things cannot be compromised. Uh, doctrines are not simply okay. Doctrines are a must. Biblical truths are non-negotiable with God. And people often ask me, and I'm sure people often ask you, you hear this question from a lot of people, you go to work and the people there know you're a Christian and you got people around you that aren't Christians, you'll be asked, how do you feel about, <laughs> you ever get that? how do you feel about this? Because I preach and things, people say, how do you feel about so-and-so? And, 
And without, I don't want to sound like a smart aleck with people like that. One years ago, I did. I didn't want to sound like a smart aleck, but I think I sounded like a smart aleck. I try to soften it up a little bit now. I want the tone to be welcoming so we can continue on with the conversation. But in, in so many words, I try to let people know, well, you know, it really doesn't matter how I feel. That's not the issue here. The issue is, what does God's word say? What is it? What is he truly, what does he want? What has he set before us? What is his truth? Because that is absolute truth. And where do we go from there? How does that affect our lives? Doctrines are the things that, that God says must be. And in this circumstance where Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, honoring their parents is, is a non-negotiable. It's a must. And they weren't doing that. They had found, they thought, they, they had found a temporary loophole in this life and in their minds, but it was not a loophole before a holy God uh, of, of taking care of themselves and, and not uh, being and doing what they should uh, by their parents and then therefore not doing right by God. And yet they had exalted these traditions as something so high that they're coming before Jesus and his disciples. They're coming before the eternal God of glory and saying, you, you know, your, your guys aren't holy. What's wrong with y'all, basically? And, and he's, he's correcting this. Now the disciples were concerned. And they said the, the, the Pharisees, are, they were offended by this. And, and he said, uh, listen, let, let them be. Let the blind guide the blind. Uh, they, they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have hearts to understand. And, uh, and he, he tells them that and, and, uh, and, and moves forward. Now, go, going back to traditions before, before I leave that, because it's why I really read all of this context together all the way through verse 28, because all that matters when we, when we get uh, to a certain point in a moment here. But I don't know that I have a lot of great examples right here off the cuff, but just about, about my, my buddy in college and the tradition that we had, that was fun. Breakfast and everything, that was fun. But what, what about when things like this begin to, to hinder our glorifying God? What about when they begin to cause dissension between us um, as people, as family members sometimes, as believers because of because of something that's not biblical, but we've elevated it to that point. Uh, I, not, not, in, not in Rocky Mount, not too far, I, I won't say anything, but I, I, have, a, I have a pastor friend, uh, he's not, not around here, but um, his ministry was over in the church he pastored. Nice, humble, meek guy, but his ministry was over when he ignorantly moved a piece of furniture from one point in a room to another point in a room. And from that point, someone took up against him in that church and railroaded his ministry um, because of something like that. that uh, things like that can be, um, can be very, uh, very dis divisive in the body of Christ. I make a disclaimer here where I pastored before. I'm not picking on Elm Grove. Those people are, were good to me and good to my family. And for all practical purposes are, are, are just good people. Just mention something. This one's a little lighthearted. It's not real serious. Not real deep. But um, we had for years and years before I got there. We had the Hallelujah Festival. 
on, uh, on, on Halloween night. Okay, so what I call that myself is, is a, it's a glorified ha- Halloween party. <laughs> so anyway, I'm not a big Halloween-y guy. I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's, that's not my thing. I kind of, kind of avoid it more times than not, but I didn't go on a witch hunt. Uh, they, they had had that thing for years and called it the Hallelujah Festival. And in the beginnings, uh, everybody was supposed to show up dressed like biblical characters, the kids, and biblical costumes and things like that. And, and that was fine. And, and I, I ran that thing for, for the three years I was youth pastor there. And, uh, and then I, and I, probably the first two years I was pastor. And then I noticed one year that we were, we were getting ready for it, and, and the folks that were involved were kind of like, well, we exasperated, we've got to get ready for the Hallelujah Festival. Well, I thought in my mind, well, you know, I, I never tried to change anything in the first few years, and I thought in my mind, well, it's, it's become a little burdensome now. It's, that's obvious from the way some people are sounding and some things. It's, it's burdensome. They'll do it. We'll, we'll go about and do it all over. But when things get to that point, and maybe we need to be careful. There, there again, now you've got the makings of a tradition that's not required by God. God never, there's nothing here. We don't have to have a hallelujah festival on Halloween. And so I said, well, so, and I, and I mentioned it. And I said, well, yeah, maybe we ought to just do something else this year. Just, you know, quietly. We don't have to pass it up in the years to come. Let's just, let's just do something else. And then I noticed when I said that, I had some comments and some, and some faces look at me like, I don't know about that. You know, when you remember watching Leave it to Beaver, you ever watched those shows and, you know, Beaver combed his hair different and Wally said, I don't know, Beaver, dad's going to be really sore. I mean, they had big life problems on Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> Not, right? And we, we you know, I had this, these looks and comments like, I, I don't know about that. Like we were getting ready to commence into sacrilege. Like we were getting ready to really do something wrong, ethically and morally. And that's when I knew, yeah, this doesn't need to happen this year. I wanted to be gentle about it. I want to be kind. But this thing has gotten to a point where the folks don't even want to do it. They're dreading it. And yet when we talk about not doing it, there's something in them that's saying, this, this might be unholy to not do this. And I said, yeah, let's, let's not do that. So we said, let's do a, this is going to hurt me to come out of my mouth, okay? This is going to bother me because let's do a trunk of treat. And I've always been kind of funny on that. Those things are, are, as goofy as I am, those things are goofy to me. But anyway, and then, and then I go off on the language of it, you know, trunk or treat. And I tell people, it's got to be trunk a treat. I'm chasing a rabbit here. Because if it's trunk or treat, what does that mean? You're going to give the kid a treat or throw him in the trunk? I don't know. It, it, we need to say trunk a treat. You're trunking in a treat for the kids. Not trunk or treat. We're either going to give you a treat or lock in the trunk. Trunk a treat. Anyway, that's my, my Halloween theology there for the night. But we said, well, let, let's do this thing. We'll dress up. You, know, you can dress up as Bible characters or something nice at the back of your car or at the back of your SUV or truck or whatever and, and pass out stuff, and we can have some tracks and some gospel things there. Be, you know, be ready for anybody that comes along, and, and we'll do that. And slowly but surely, because a couple of people said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that, they, we went forward, and we had, we had a trunk a treat 
uh, in the in the back of the church in the parking lot and and everything. And then and then the next year came, and it was time. And I and I because I wanted to make sure that that people knew I was not trying to be antagonistic. I was not trying to just destroy a fun tradition. I said, "Hey, is everybody? Would you would you be ready to do the um, the Hallelujah Festival down at the clubhouse again?" And a couple of people went, "I'm confused now. I didn't think we were doing that anymore." And I said, "No, no. I never said we weren't doing that anymore. But we just take a break." Do you see what I'm saying? And uh, wonderful people, better people than I am by far. I promise you that. But we get we get locked into things, and we need to be careful. With traditions. Traditions are okay and they're nice and they can even be helpful at times, depending on what they are, if they're not contrary to the Word of God. If they're contrary to the Word of God, they've got to go. They have just got to go. And it may take a while for that to happen. If they're okay with the Word of God, they're they're okay until they become equivalent with the Word of God. Now we've got to Probably a worse problem than we would have had if we were doing something in the beginning that wasn't even biblical. Case in point, um, when we were in Lesotho, we'd ride it's rocky mountain roads just all the way. 40 minutes until you got to the paved road from the village of Maputsing that we lived in. And as you go down that path, and it's... it's um, it, it doesn't seem to be as desperately a poor country as some other places because the population of Lesotho is not, a, is not large. It's, it's, it's a very sparsely populated country. But it is a third world country. It's just more livable because you don't have people all crammed in in cities next to each other. So we'd ride through these villages and in this poor third world mountain country we would see these uh, the framework of, of houses that were not being lived in. Now, there's no forest in Lesotho. The houses are built out of stone. And the walls of a house are usually a foot to two feet thick. And so the walls will stand there forever. While Even when the roof crashes in, the walls are just standing there in perfect form because of what they're made out of. And we'd go back, and I remember when we first moved there, I'd see these empty houses built out of stone for all practical purposes. Why somebody would leave them like that, um, and, and I may have shared this with you before when we've talked about Lesotho, but why somebody would leave them like that, I, I didn't understand, and, and certainly the ones that had roofs on them, I did not understand why they were not occupied. And how, how did they continue to stay unoccupied? Why didn't somebody in a poor place like that just move in them? And not each individual house, we couldn't prove that, but the missionary that brought us there, he explained to me. He said the Basutu people, they're animists. They're into ancestry worship. So that's uh, heaped with tradition. And, and it's, it's very pagan. And he said what, what happens in a lot of these cases is, is when the father of a household dies, and I think I have shared this with you before, but, but in their beliefs, their traditions, when the father of a household dies, they bury him in the house. I mean, the floors, usually most people don't have a concrete or a wood floor. They're dirt floors. And they bury him, they dig, and they bury the father of that household in the house. And because his spirit in their minds dwells there, everybody has to leave 
They cannot live there anymore. So widows and children are left to find shelter for themselves because if their father and husband died, they bury them in there and the widow and the, and the, and the orphans have to fend for themselves. And go at it. Isn't that sad? That's how dangerous, that's an extreme, but that's how dangerous traditions can be that are not biblical and that are not based on truth and on God's word. And so uh, there's things that are in between that can maybe be more subtly dangerous to us than we may, than we may think. And I've, I've stayed on that for a while. But um, when, we, when we think about these things, we keep in mind what is, what is non-negotiable for God. And we can't bend on those things. Hopefully to the death if it ever requires that. And it does. And it, and it, it is today for brethren of ours and other places in the world. Um, and, and, and who knows when it, when it gets where it gets. <clears throat> other things, if, uh, if they're okay with God, if He doesn't address them one way or another, they're, they're okay unless or until they, they get to a level like these, these Pharisees had where they had made, they had equated holiness with this ceremony that they had created for themselves. Maybe it was passed down, but it wasn't passed down in such a way where God said, you must do this to be holy. He never, he never implied that or passed that down to us in such a way. So he, he talks about that, and then interesting thing about uh, how Jesus reiterates this, I won't go back over and read it all again, but Jesus has to, he, he, has, he has given this example of what makes a person unclean. It's not what goes uh, into the mouth that makes a person unclean. It's what comes from the heart and comes out of a person that makes a person defiled or, or unclean. That, that, that they are unclean in that case. And he says this in three different ways. He, he, he makes a statement. He explains it again, and then he tells the disciples, are you still without understanding? He explains it again. Now, the first guy years ago that ever brought this to my attention, and that uh, uh, really a critical point in my life, and I think it's a critical point in all of our lives, to understand this principle that God is concerned with our hearts. And that when the heart is right with him, the potential is there for everything else, for us to walk in step with Him in, in all other ways. He is concerned with our hearts, not with what's on the outside of us, not with traditions, but this, this is the start of all holiness in our lives, of all uh, righteous acts. Things start with Christ in our heart. But the man told me, I remember he said, uh, he said Mike, if Jesus said anything once, then it, it, we, we better live by it. But if he has to reiterate something three times, then there's something critical to our lives there. And I do. I think that's, that's this critical about us. And I won't go through all that again because I know I'm being very redundant right now. He goes on to say, um, you know, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a man. We need to remember that and practice that and live by that personally. And we need to take this into mind in the way that we view other people and the way we fellowship and worship together and the way that we 
and the way that we reach other people and the way that we see other people's lives. And that's getting ready to be very critical. All of that to, to this next passage when we come to Matthew 15, verse 21. And I'll say a little bit about this and then we'll close. It says in verse 21, I'll go back there again. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. No, 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 no. You don't go there, holy man. That is not a respectable place. You're going into an area of Gentiles, and it says then, not only that, a Canaanite woman. Things are getting worse. A Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, son of David, for my daughter is cruelly tormented by a demon. So they've, he's gone into Tyre and Sidon. He's confronted by a Canaanite woman. She's nagging them, and she's got a demon-possessed daughter. And this is not a comfortable situation, right? We, we have these things in life, and sometimes we say, God, please, no, not that. Give me another assignment. These are Jonah moments. Um, and the disciples in a case like this, uh, their, their mouths had to have been hanging open. Why, why are we here? And they said, send this woman away. She's nagging us. And, and, and Jesus content, commences to having a conversation with her. Now keep in mind where they are and who they're dealing with and what the circumstances they're dealing with and everything that Jesus had just taught about cleanness and uncleanliness. It was critical here, wasn't it? He just prepared them for a real lesson in being missionaries and being evangelists and being ambassadors uh, of Christ and for his kingdom. And it said at first he, he didn't say a word to her. You know, you, you read this carefully through and you would have the idea that Jesus was the rudest guy and the most insulting person that ever walked the face of this earth. And he was insulting at times, but he was always righteous in his insults, wasn't he? He had a way of getting to the heart of things, because that's the issue, right? The heart. And he was going to get to the heart of something that the, he was going to get to the heart of where the disciples' lives were and how they viewed life and man and ministry. And he was also going to get the heart of this woman's life and what she needed and how he was going to deal with her. At first, he, he, he didn't comment. His disciples said to send her away, and instead of sending her away, he, he made a statement to her in verse 21, verse 24. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, obviously, that, that is a temporary statement, right? That is a, a statement in terms of his, his earthly assignment. Because in Matthew 28 and beyond, he's going to tell the disciples, I want you to go unto all nations and preach the gospel to all people. I want, I want to be worshipped by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So you've got to keep this statement in context of, of where he is at this point in his earthly ministry to call out these Jews in a place of Israel to make disciples and to send them out into the world. And Justin's been talking a lot about that lately, beautifully. Um, from where? Romans where 12? Where are we? 11, thank you. I was one chapter. I'm not good at numbers, Merle. I need you. But he's, he's been uh, doing a wonderful job in talking about that. So without going all there, this is where he's at, and he shares that with her, and she was persistent. It says she came, and she knelt before him and said, 
Lord, help me. And then he makes another statement. Think about it. He said, it isn't right to take the children's bread, the Jews, and throw it to the, their dogs, a, a Canaanite, a Gentile. This isn't right. She could have said, well, and walked off. She needed Jesus, though, didn't she? And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. We, we as, as Americans, live in a life of outward things and comforts to where we, we have, even as Christians in the church, we have a hard time understanding just how valuable the treasure of the crumbs from God's table are, don't we? It's tough. We have a hard time seeing the spiritual value of things, of life in Christ, of the souls of people. I, I do. I, I really do. Let me, let me put some modern, um, something that's understandable probably to every one of us in this room out of this passage. This, uh, kind of the context that we're living in. When these disciples are watching Jesus, where he went and dealing with this woman and that he dealt with her, we would probably say, well, look, don't, uh, don't help that guy at the exit ramp. Uh, those guys are all scams. They're all liars. They're making $106,500 a year taking up panhandling at the, at the exit. And they all live in the presidential suite down at the uh, Fairfield. I know they don't have presidential suites. <laughs> and you know, to tell you the truth, I mean, 90% of the time that, that might be true. But what about, what about when that woman's standing there and she really does have three hungry children and she really is hungry. And if one of us had the time to stop and talk, she really would be, she would welcome the crumbs off of Jesus' table. The word of God, the truth, the gospel. We, we can't have a, a traditional convenient theology that is so convenient to our minds that it frees us from everything that God might have us do and the people that he might have us reach. And that is, that is the danger in, in getting tunnel visioned and traditions and habits and ways that God has not said to do. I would tell, every, I would tell my kids and my wife, don't pick up hitchhikers. I still say that. I might, have, I might have gotten into this before. I'm kind of missional sometimes in the way I talk about things. I don't want them to. But within, within a context and a place for each of us, each of us do have moments and circumstances and situations to where there's people that need Christ, that need us to be His hands and feet and His mouth, and as a habit, as a rule of thumb, as a tradition, we don't normally stop and do things and talk to certain people and, 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 and go through certain, um, certain steps in our lives and, and certain contexts. But there, there are those situations. I, can't, I wouldn't even begin to, to, to start to draw them out for you because I'm not the Holy Spirit. But you and I know. We know when there's, when there's things that we avoid, certain situations, and then there's times where God says this is the exception. When the Holy Spirit says to us, this is, this is a point where I want you to stop 
and not go by your normal traditions and your normal rules. I want you to pay attention to this person. I want you to pay attention to this situation. Uh, there's, um, there's, a, there's a fertile ground here. And, and if, we're, if we're so railroaded and, and single-minded and, and, um, and tuned in to some of our habits and some of our traditions, we can, we can miss those things. And uh, this is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture with this Canaanite woman. I, can't, I, I can hardly keep a straight face talking about it and uh, how precious that is. And it was outside of the boundaries, certainly, of what these Pharisees believed when we get into chapter 15 in Matthew. And it was even outside of the boundaries of the immediate, um, of the norm of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was going to send these guys into a world of this after his ascension. But he was also in some, in some places like this, he was going to show them his love for these people. He makes that very clear uh, to Peter in the book of Acts uh, that he loves everyone and he, he wants us to go to all people. And he's made that very clear to us in, in passages like this. I'm going to stop now. Any questions, comments, or cries of outrage? If you have any, Merle would be glad to take them. And, uh, so anyway, okay, well, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and mercy towards us and in us. And as uh, far as I know, I don't really know exactly where my ancestors came from. But Lord, I, I think it was the British Isles somewhere along there. And you know for sure. And uh, I confess before you and, and before my brothers and sisters that I come from a, a heritage of pagans and worshipers of false gods and unclean people and was unclean myself. And outside of your grace today, I still would be. And based upon... The things that I do and some things that I don't do, I still would be. And yet you've been, you've been kind out of the goodness and the kindness of your heart and of your will. And so, Lord, I thank you. I praise you. I worship you. This, this was so sweet uh, in reading this to see the wisdom and the love of Christ. The patience and, and the firmness and the solidness of, of who you are. Lord, help us to see everything as you see it. And I know that takes a long time. It takes all of our lives. And uh, Lord, may we, may we deepen in our faith. May we deepen in our concern for, for the souls of people around us. For maybe especially the difficult people, the untouchables, whatever that may be. Lord, help us and guide us and use us. May you be glorified and enjoyed by us and enjoyed by people who, um, who we encounter. That are, that are ready and willing um, by your grace to hear and receive your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.